0: We must make security a reality again. Ladies and gentlemen, are you ready to live behind everything you value
1: in your life in the world of yesterday? Ukrainians will not do it. This is our response.
2: deep dive that we did, folks, was, I believe, eight episodes ago. It was episode 93. And this week we weren't weren't planning on having a deep dive, actually. And um, I thought it may be useful to sort of begin looking at the reason why we're uh, doing a deep dive instead of the episode we had planned out for the week, um, which is that one of the guests that we had for this for this blockbuster episode that we were really, really excited about was unfortunately attending the Munich Security Conference. No surprise. Um and I wanna begin by, by addressing this this conference and kind of tie it into some of the some of the topics that were addressed, uh primarily uh, around Ukraine. But Frankie, you've been looking very closely at uh defense pact that Ukraine has been uh recently working on and signing with, with uh with some allies. Do you wanna tell us a little bit about what's happening, whether uh whether that was part of the news that we heard from the Munich uh conference?
0: Yeah, I mean Zelensky has been going for a bit of a, um, a mini-tour across the West, so to speak, because at, at the moment, the big story for Ukraine is what's going on in Washington with, with Republicans in Congress blocking the, I forget the exact number, Julian, you have to, to correct me, but I think it's 600, is it 600 bill, billion? Am I off? No, no, sorry, 60, 60 billion?
1: In euros, it's about sixty billion. Or oh, yeah, it's it's a ninety-five billion dollar military aid aid packet.
0: Yeah, that's it. Yeah, so some, something along those lines, which is being blocked by Republicans, and it's created this kind of weird freeze in Europe, especially in Germany, where people are saying, "Well, if America can't support, then you know we need America for leadership on this," um, which has been a strange message to give because essentially it only increases the stake on the upcoming presidential election. But what has happened over the last few weeks, starting in January with the UK, is a series of defence and security pact between um, Ukraine and big Western countries, which aren't the United States. So we're talking about mid-January, we had a big deal with the United Kingdom. And then this week, last uh, Friday for those listening we had an agreement between Germany and Ukraine and between France and Ukraine now those are defense pacts I think they're published online mostly so you should be able to find the, the details of them but what's interesting is these are kind of long-term commitments I think for France it's 10 years or until until Ukraine joins joins NATO so they're committing for the long term. We're talking about further military equipment. We're talking about uh, cooperation on cybersecurity. We're talking about more humanitarian aid. So there's a a big win for Ukraine, especially at this moment where it feels like the entire fate of a country depends on the votes of a few uh, Republican senators, for example. So, yeah, I'm interested to get Julian's point of view from Washington, because even the Ukrainians I'm meeting here in London we really only really care about what's going on in Washington. It seems like it's the be all end all of the Ukrainian cause at the moment.
1: Yeah, so I suppose I should probably start by clarifying slash correcting on the asset. So there are currently two military aid proposals. One is ninety-five billion dollars that passed the US Senate and is currently sitting in the House where it doesn't look like it's gonna go anywhere. And so the House presented its own version, which is around sixty-six billion dollars. So slightly less and with more sort of terms on uses and inspections to ensure that there isn't any waste in the military aid package. The problem with both of these bills and from the US perspective is the fact that Mike Johnson, the current Speaker of the House, who most people probably didn't know existed outside of the US until late last year when he abruptly became Speaker, is not experienced in House Republican leadership. So his team isn't experienced in negotiating with the Senate, the White House, international parties, and then managing the caucus as well. And to add to this, um, his own, you know, the the majority leader, which is the number two in the majority party in the House of Representatives, in this case, Steve Scalise, um, is currently being treated for cancer. And so he's been absent. And the upshots or the result of all of this is that the House Republicans can't even pass bills that their leadership team likes. With that being said, there's no external lobbying that can really shift the ground um, for the military aid packages. It's going to be internal deliberations uh, within the Republican Party on the House side that will get these packages through. We don't need to go into the parliamentary procedure of how they could happen, but I would point out that the State of the Union is coming up in a few weeks and I would be extremely surprised if President Biden didn't use that opportunity when speaking to the entire country um, Uh. to bring up military aid, make that a focus and put pressure on Republicans especially with uh, the death of Navalny, probably the most well-known activist in Russia among American voters but I guess all is to say that the prospects aren't looking good but there are opportunities for pressure to be applied within the US.
0: Yeah, I was actually noticing that um, one of uh, Mike Johnson's comms guy was a bit of a a Twitter jokester. He was uh, uh, following me the other day on on, on Instagram, I'm sorry, on Instagram, on Twitter. And um, yeah, he had quite a taste for memes. I'm I'm hoping he also has time for doing what seems to be a a very difficult job at the moment. But to go back to Europe, um there's an interesting angle to this as well, which is for France, the UK and Germany, especially France and Germany, these are countries which their standing in Europe really took a hit after the war in Ukraine. For those who tuned in to, um our previous episode on um, France and Germany and how they kind of underestimated the Russian threat to Europe, the Russian threat to Ukraine specifically. These are countries which have been kind of struggling since to rebuild their reputation. Um, In Germany, there was the aggravating case of Russian gas making the country so dependent and really plunging Europe in a very difficult energy crisis. For France, it's a little different. There's also a lot of kind of self-inflicted harm by Emmanuel Macron over his comments about, you know, we shouldn't be humiliating Russia and comments along those lines, which end up being very counterproductive and um, very damaging to France's image. And so for both France and Germany, it's an opportunity to kind of crawl themselves back out of that kind of gap. And they saw countries like Poland, for example, really build their their kind of moral leadership during that time. For France, it's especially important because, I mean, we talked about it once or twice last year, but there is a bit of kind of a battle around the numbers of um, kind of european western aid to ukraine the the Kiel institute which is kind of the official go-to uh, website for this has germany contributing i think 17 or 18 billion euros in france is like officially at 600 million and obviously that's a huge discrepancy but essentially what's going on is everyone is, is fighting about whether this Uh, whether the institute is kind of counting this fairly france is saying that a lot of the equipment it sends is top secret and on top of that the equipment it sends is modern and immediately operational whereas kind of they don't say germany but they kind of you know nudge nudge wink wink um other equipment is not as good and sometimes quite antiquated and essentially they're kind of uh, blowing up the numbers by giving equipment which has some monetary value but very limited uh, military value. So yeah, I think France has been trying for the last six months or so to kind of blow up those numbers a little bit um, both by contributing materially but also by kind of challenging the way the numbers are being counted in the first place. So yeah, this defence pact for France is important because I think the kind of let's not humiliate Russia page has been turned. But um, this defense pact probably is something that will be reassuring French diplomats that this, this page has kind of turned and we are moving on to something different.
2: Yeah. yeah. And I I want to, I want to go back to one of the um, uh, parliamentary dynamics that, that uh, Julian was alluding to just earlier. It was, uh, a very odd coincidence in time, when uh, I believe that just as um, a lot of the Republican uh, opposition uh, to this uh, aid package was was beginning to you know um, to gain sort of this this uh, this, this drumbeat, uh, you had uh, Hungary kind of um, uh, you know um, 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 using some of the same arguments, right? And they're they're actually they're actually uh, convergent in a lot of ways, right? They're uh, I think the um, Jacksonian nationalist faction of the uh, um, uh, Congressional Republican Caucus is echoing a lot of Orban's points about this war, right? This war should have never dragged on for this long. We should have sought a a negotiated peace settlement from the get go. This was a very unrealistic war for even with uh, the highest expectations of Western aid going into Ukraine, it would have been very unrealistic to roll Russia back. Uh, quickly enough, and this would have, this is really dragging on for too long, and obviously Hungary has its own reasons for, for belief, for taking on this realist stance, but where I think these two positions between congressional Republicans and Hungarian, and the Hungarian government are diverging, is that, you know, the congressional Republicans are saying this should be a matter for Europe to deal with, and Orbán says, no, 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 Europe should not be dealing with this either. and I think within the Congressional Republican caucus that Julian was describing, I think you have a very interesting tension between people who are, for instance, very uh, close to and listening very closely to Elbridge Colby, who's someone who has been for a long while really arguing for sort of rebalancing and sort of, you know, refocusing away in, um, and, and, you know, in, in sort of the, the, the traditional and even the bipartisan way of, you know, pivoting away from, from the traditional patronage of Europe, letting the Europeans pick up the burden of their own yeah. security. But you do have uh, you do have a lot of this echoing of Orban, which conflicts with that, because actually Orban doesn't want Europe to pick up that burden. So Albert um, wish actually interesting. So, uh, we, should, we
0: should try and invite him. He's um, I don't think we agree with everything, we, um, but I think essentially his case is we America spending too much time and effort focusing on what's going on in Europe when clearly the future will be determined by what's going on in, in Asia and especially in China. And so, essentially, what's going on in Ukraine is a distraction from that point of view. So, yeah, I'd be interested mm-hmm. to kind of get his point of view. We should try inviting him actually. And yeah. honestly, that last yeah. point
1: is quite so, similar to what some in the U.S. are arguing in terms of America's strategic focus needs to be in the Indo-Pacific, not in Black Sea. And a lot of the arguments on, you know, the aid package that really, you know, in some ways they are genuine, but it's obviously a lot of domestic politics and trying to sort of hamstring the Biden administration. We've um, heard yep. various other items, which we don't particularly need to discuss. But the, the there are some who believe that sending aid to Ukraine means less aid to Taiwan, which for the majority mm. of the Republican caucus is the conflict to watch rather
2: than the one in Ukraine. Mm, 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 mm. Yeah. 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 Although, you know, is that really I mean, just just as a follow up, Julian, do you think that's a, um, that's a um, a unanimous um, assumption within the uh, within conservative intellectual conservative circles in the US that actually um, Ukraine is not worth risking nuclear Armageddon over, but Taiwan is? Because I've heard some of the perspectives from, from someone like Michael Anton, who says, you know, actually even Taiwan, you know, China cares a lot more about Taiwan than we should. So uh, then we on our side should be, be willing to, to defend the, their, their integrity. So do do you, do you think this is like more of a, is this really a sort of a selective balancing of the different priorities or is this just like a general retreat? Of this like traditional jacksonian almost isolationist retreat well a former professor
1: of mine would argue that the u.s has always been isolationist and always should um although i don't agree with him but he uh, he does make this point quite in a quite compelling way um i think if you're looking at the way the debates over taiwan are playing out right now there is that argument that it will always matter to china more than it will to the us and similarly in the same way that people were making back in 2014 the argument that ukraine would always matter more to russia than it would to the us and in fact this was a large reason for why the obama administration had been so reluctant to provide javelins to the ukrainian military was because they were worried about escalating tensions with putin and that sort of Institutional memory is carried over into the Biden administration and some of their initial reluctance. On the Taiwan front, there is a very strong and vocal chorus of voices in the Republican Party that are of the war is inevitable and we have three years to get ready crowd.
0: Yeah.
1: And losing Taiwan means all these other things will happen down the road that mm. would be bad for American power. And then there are some who are of the mind that well, there's nothing really we can do. And that's where sort of Donald Trump came in of looking at how close Taiwan was to China and saying, well, there's nothing we can really do. And all of their military preparation being focused on area denial for US forces is a cause for concern. We hear all the reports about war gaming and how China would be able to prevail in a conflict with the US in certain war games or it would go nuclear, in which case everybody loses. So I think, That is absolutely a strain of thought, but I don't think it's the dominant one. And a lot of the reasoning for using Taiwan as a reason to hold up Ukraine is because the longer we're talking about corruption in Ukraine, if you're a Republican, the more likely your base is to hear Joe Biden, Hunter Biden, Burisma. And a lot of the Mm. desire to hold it up and say, well, you know, we don't know what the military aid will get through is a way to sort of remind voters of that. But also there's a large element of Mm. if Ukraine starts to falter, then in an election year, you can say, oh, Joe Biden, look at how bad the world is in his four years in office. We had Afghanistan and now we have Ukraine. Clearly we need to go back to the way things were before. So there's a domestic political element that is really driving a lot of it. It's not so much in practicality. And that's what's Mm. really driving a lot of the foreign policy minded folks in Congress mad.
0: And I mean let me should talk about what I mean, amid this context, we have the u.s. presidential election, and I think two weeks ago Donald Trump um, decided to attack pretty directly a lot of his NATO allies who underspend on defense. For reaction, I mean his his response first of all, he said, we would encourage Russia sorry. He w- we would encourage Russia to do whatever the hell they want to any NATO member that doesn't meet spending guidelines. That is remarkable, whatever the hell they want. And it is, people will say, no, it's not that different from what Obama was saying. but Americans have always been saying that Europeans need to pay up and so on. But the kind of nature of that common, the kind of slightly mafia-esque you know, pay up or, or else, is is remarkable and so i'm happy that there has been a uptake in 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 defense spending in europe but um if anything it really didn't really happen much under under trump it's going on now because of russia if anything um but it offers a pretty bleak perspective on what the future could be if um a donald trump presidency comes in i I mean, last time there was a lot of bravado against NATO during Trump's term, but none of it really ended up materialising concretely. This time it seems like he's back with a vengeance. So, yeah, I'm interested to to hear your thoughts about, you know, are are we going to see a a different Trump who is not only going to be instinctively very anti-NATO, but also capable of executing upon his threats? I think it's important to say, though, he's not asking for the dismantling of NATO he is asking to kind of beat up in some way countries who are not um, spending up two percent of their GDP I think yeah. yeah I think the most
1: it's not in any way surprising that he's making these comments he's always been of that mind and I think John Bolton warned in the 2020 election that a second trump president would see would probably lead to a u.s withdrawal from NATO, And I'm not sure how much of that is Bolton being alarmist and how much of that is driven by his experiences in the White House working for President Trump. I I wasn't remotely surprised by the fact that, you know, the, the 2% line has been a, a frequent refrain. The add-on of Russia can do whatever the hell they want is very alarming. But also, I think we've seen... I guess I'm not going to give too much credence to it because I, he's always been of that mindset. But also, I think the realities and pressures of seeing appearing to be weak in the face of international conflict would be a more would be a strong driving force for action by a second President Trump um, compared to what he's saying on the campaign trail at the moment. The real concern that I've seen in some of the commentary on this is that in the first term, you had all these people around him who weren't able to fully restrain him but on a lot of key issues were able to get some things that were more conventional in u.s policy done would those same voices be around or would michael flynn come back as national security advisor in this time you know trump doesn't really care if he's lying to the fbi in an investigation uh he's just going to stay there for good and those Mm. sorts of things are where there's a lot of concern about him stuffing the cabinet full of um sycophants that being said i'm personally of the mind that he doesn't have a desire or interest in governing um yeah. he has a desire and interest in power attention and staying in jail and for those reasons it's less likely that he would actually be engaged and focused on countering russian aggression in eastern europe because he'd be spending all of his time fighting a million investigations for corruption um, that would inevitably ensue ensue from a second term. Um, And there's also the very strong argument that a lot of the people he appointed last time were pretty incompetent uh, from an administrative and bureaucratic perspective. And all the talk of firing all the civil servants um, would just make the problem worse because then absolutely nothing would get done. And in some ways that's, you know, bad for government, but also good if you're obstructionist or, or don't want him to enact certain policies. So I, I I guess, you know, I'm not surprised by the comments. They are alarming, especially considering the United States is the only country to ever activate Article 5. Um, but again, not surprising, but I'm not overreacting to them.
2: Yeah, well, actually, Julian, one, one question about this latest um, topic you, you've touched upon. Um you know, the the sort of the Trump camp and more generally, increasingly the overall uh, GOP um, ecosystem, but I think mostly the Trump campaign, because they've had this experience of having gone into office in 2016, haven't been uh, having run into obstacles in every single agency where they didn't have enough people to staff these agencies with enough policy chops to be able to implement these, uh, these programs from the get-go. They ran into some of the uh, deep state, right, and people who were like, like non not non appointees who were like you know obstructing the agenda of the administration. Do you think this is uh, this is also the case when it comes to NATO? Do you think that even if Trump took steps to begin to withdraw from 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 the from the defense back, it would run into these kinds of obstacles and and these um, these um, uh, you know obviously the Pentagon, but even uh, the State Department and, and across the administration. Do you think he would run into some some serious uh, bureaucratic obstruction that would preventing from... It wouldn't just be direction. bureaucratic. It would be
1: congressional too. I mean, I think the House and Senate would just pass a bill affirming US commitment to NATO and it would be 90 to 1 or um, mm. well, 99 mm. to 1 in the, in the Senate and then probably 430 to 5 in the House. And then it would override any presidential action on that one. In terms of the bureaucratic side, mm. you know, I think looking back on it, on the defense state, those elements, the obstructionism, I think, is very much overplayed. In large part, because a lot of it stemmed from sheer administrative incompetence, and I think the easiest example of this is the Muslim travel ban, that they had to read four or five times mm. because the lawyers kept getting the language wrong, mm. and one. Checking certain boxes, weren't saying certain things. They had legal powers to do it, even though it would be challenged. But in order to actually issue the rule, they had to do certain things, and they kept getting blocked from doing it by courts because they were failing on very basic administrative um, tasks. I don't think that changes of you know with four years in the wilderness or with setting up a think tank to prepare for certain things like withdrawing from NATO. I don't think you suddenly become more competent having spent four years out of government. I think. You probably double down on all your worst instincts, especially if you're running in a sort of revenge campaign. And I think a lot of the obstructionism and this sort of deep state that everyone's pointing to uh, on, you know, from the Trump campaign and on that side of the political aisle, you know, a lot of those problems or quote unquote problems wouldn't be there if they had people experienced in government, but they don't. And they won't in a second term or wouldn't in a second Mm -hmm. term. So I think they would run into the same issues. But it wouldn't necessarily be because of permanent civil servants. It would be because of the incompetence of the appointees, which is a problem that many people point yeah. to in a lot of yeah. US administrations.
0: And it's it's also good to yeah. point out that it's unclear to me that a, a, a Trump 2.0 president would be more focused and capable of pushing for his agenda through the different bottlenecks we were talking about. I mean, there seems to be kind of early signs of him um, with age taking a toll because he's, what, 78, 79 now? Um, so he looks mm-hmm. like he's not quite as sharp as he was a few years ago.
1: Yeah, I mean, I, th- I think that's absolutely yeah um, going to be a point. And I, th- I think something that's underestimated, it's been documented in various books about the Trump administration, but a lot of the staffing of the effective agencies wasn't done by Trump's people. It was all done by Mike Pence. So, for instance, education, energy, agriculture—all mm. the those sorts of levels—were Mike Pence's team were the ones uh, picking out names and suggesting names, and those agencies tended to be more effective in what they were doing, in large part because you know Pence had that network. So, when we look at you know Trump's VP pick, that will be a, a key factor in determining whether there is actually any efficacy. But I think on the big agencies, defense, state. Um, CIA, you're likely to get some fairly questionable characters nominated uh, in the event of a Trump victory and whether they be confirmed by the Senate, um, I don't know. The Senate likes to give a lot of leeway to national security appointments. I mean, they allowed John Ratcliffe, but generally, but I, they they probably would take quite a stri- harsh view if, for instance, Michael Flynn got nominated to be head of the CIA.
2: Mm Hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I think uh, the Heritage Foundation has been hard at work over uh, the entire Biden administration actually to to come up with this uh, so-called transition project, whatever they call it, uh, Project 2025, to really kind of hit the ground running when Trump's elected to have like a whole slate of people that he would be able to appoint to all of these low level, low rung uh, presidential appointments and put people through people who don't even need to be, you know, confirmed by the Senate or whatever to have like a roster of people that he can pick out from almost like uh, with uh, uh, like you know, blindly, like just, just, just have a repository of good people of names, you know, not not having to to look out for them. Um, folks, I wanna I wanna turn to the next topic, if that's okay with you. I feel like we've uh, addressed the NATO, Bhutan, and also the yeah. Ukraine issue, and we're gonna somewhat turn shift gears towards another theater, but in a way we're gonna remain within this broad. Uh, topical bucket of you know the uh the american the the um, the american hegemony tearing at the seams right this um this um this american um hegemony that has been funding uh not just the euro-atlantic uh defense community but really the entire rules-based global order i think has been tearing at the seams in various places right and we've been covering this this crisis across ver- various episodes of this podcast but we've Really, really uh, thoroughly addressed the Ukraine crisis. We've uh, somewhat addressed uh, Taiwan. We haven't really touched upon Israel. And and I I know I you know full disclosure I have just to be fully frank with our audience I have um, strong interest in putting together an episode on on Israel that will cover the European angle on what what the EU's kind of um, uh, outcomes desired outcomes are in, in in Gaza and it's really difficult uh, uh, these days to get a to get a sober perspective on that, and that's kind of uh, what I wanted to address with you both, and really get your your thoughts, you know, because um, um, the um, um, the EU and you know in 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 the um, in the the person of Yusef Borrell, who's the uh, foreign policy VP of the European Commission, he he was um, he came out at the Munich uh, Security Conference saying, you know, for for I believe the first time, I don't know if he ever really made steps in this direction in the last. Crisis in 2021, which we did uh, partly cover. Remember, Frankie, yeah. we had an episode about the the rocket fire raining raining down from Gaza um, uh, back then. But this time, uh, at, at the Munich conference, Borrell came out saying, you know, well, we need we need an arms embargo, which which I think was was um, was I think in some ways unprecedented. And this has been, you know, the latest in a string of statements that I think um, even in Borrell's home country, my country, Spain, which is I think by European standards or rather, you know, anti-Israel society in terms of public opinion for, for historical reasons, for left-wing reasons, right-wing reasons, anti-Semitic reasons, anti-Zionist reasons, uh, it really is one of the most pro-Palestinian electorates in, in, in the EU. And even back here, there's, uh, there's been a lot of pushback against those statements. You know, he, he um, <laughs> this is one of my favorite ones, and I'd really love to get your thoughts on this. Borrell says that Israel cannot defeat Hamas by military means because Hamas is an idea. What's your What's your reaction?
0: That sounds like uh, that half-smart kid in IR one hundred and one or something. Um, <laughs> he's kind yeah. of wing it. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, it is also in Europe's interest to limit the, um, the damage as much as possible. So whether an arms mm-hmm. embargo is. The right uh, vehicle for that is is debatable, but um, I think for quite a while Europeans were kind of rabbits in 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 the um, car lights and they weren't really sure what to do and how to react. Now there's undeniably condemning Hamas, there's undeniably doing all possible to return the hostages, but at the same time it, there is understanding that the kind of chaos in Gaza might trigger back to europe if it's not properly managed so mm. it is trickling back already through the form of terrorism we saw a kind of surge in terrorist violence in europe since um and so yeah again it's it's unclear how much and i think that would be the kind of key question in our conversation if we do an episode on this topic is how much leverage does europe have on this on this issue how much can you actually change the behavior of any of the actors involved um, again, I would argue that very much like in the case of, of what's going on in Ukraine, most of the leverage is currently in somewhere between the Capitol and the White House in Washington. So I Borrell's comments were, yes, unusual and, and received as so. But at the same time, I understand why Europeans are kind of scratching their heads about what they can do to influence the conflict in one way or another.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Um, what is the um, what is the, um, 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 you know, um, uh, what's the view from 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 Washington on this, um, uh, Julian, because obviously, you know, we don't really have anything like, you know, an evangelical movement in, in, in Europe or, or nothing of the size uh, that you have in the US. We don't really have, you know, the sort of the pro-Israel um, the pro-Israel battalion or the pro-Israel camp in in uh, uh, in the in, in in Europe really revolves around Israel itself and its diplomatic uh, presence in in European capitals and and some some something of a larger uh, campaign to combat anti-Semitism against Jews based in Europe, but we don't really have that sort of grassroots uh, movement of support for Israel even among like Christians that you see in in, in America. So how how is the let, let, let me put this question to you? Is there a sense among uh, conservative Republicans in the U.S. That, that the terrorism in Gaza has been at least partly funded by Europe?
1: Ooh, that's a very good question. Um, I would say on the Republican side, they're mostly looking at a few... When they're calling people out for funding um, Hamas and other terrorist groups operating in the area they really are just looking at the countries in the Middle East that have historically played a role in providing financing and resources. Um, Many congressional Republicans leapt at the story about UNRWA, Um, UNRWA officers Mm -hmm. helping out uh, in October 7th and alleged sort of funding discrepancies there. That was sort of music to the ears of a lot of congressional Republicans who've been very strong on Cutting, moving to restrict the amount of funding that goes to UN agencies in just, general as a particular one. Obviously, it's a very unique one. Uh, given just the- to be clear,
0: for those who aren't familiar with um, UN bingo cards of acronyms, the, Unite- the UNRWA is the United Nations Relief and Works Agency. So essentially, they work with uh, Palestinian refugees in the Near East, and the kind of a relief agency which is funded by 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 the UN. they are unique in being specific for
1: yeah. uh palestinians among other UN yes. agencies they're the only one that is dedicated for one uh, one now yeah so th- i think that's been the general sense in the u.s There has isn't been much of a conversation about europe funding um terrorist groups in the middle east it's been very much focused on those countries in the middle east that uh come up as the usual suspects um for financing uh, those activities and those groups um i will refrain from naming them right now but learned listeners will Mm. be able to guess exactly which countries i am referring to um but probably the less said about Mm. that from my perspective the better
2: Yeah. Well, the, the reason I was asking, you see, is because, um, um, you know, um, you do have a sense, and I haven't looked at the nationality of the people involved, but you you, you both know about the, the breaking news story from, from a couple of weeks ago that, uh, that some uh, UNRWA, Gaza-based uh, UNRWA employees uh, were actively partaking in the planning of the October 7th attack. And you know, I was stuck there thinking like we shouldn't really just be asking kind of what was UNRWA's financial and logistical uh, potential involvement in, in in the in the unleashing of, of terror on on southern Israel, but really how many of these people were went to Unra schools? Because you know, a lot of the question when I, I've been following some of these debates in Strasbourg and Brussels and the European Parliament about the money that that the EU spends in in Gaza, and a lot of the issues that actually come up is you know this is not just about what uh, political groups or terrorist groups are uh, potentially uh, filtering through the aid that comes in from Europe into Gaza. But this is really the kind of educational materials that are being supplied in these schools. You know, we used to have this thing called um, uh, Pegido or something like that. I forget the acronym, but it was an an educational um, uh, top line that that this uh, amount of money that that Europe gave gave every year for, for, for schools in Gaza. And it was reve- and they sort of contracted out the educational curricula that these Gazan kids were being taught to this um, to this NGO, which ended up being very heavily anti-Semitic, and the books themselves were conveying a lot of anti-Semitic content. So I think, yes, I think there, I think there is reasons to be uh, asking ourselves, but I think Europeans aren't be- aren't asking themselves so far. Um, what is Europe's uh, role in sort of fostering this climate of? You know what, what a lot of scholars call Palestinian rejectionism right the fact that uh that the majority obviously the overwhelming majority i think of, of um of uh gaza society feels very uncomfortable uh, living side by side with the jewish state with any jewish state any jewish presence in the in the land between the river and the sea and what could europe be you know in reverse what could europe be doing to actually educate towards the contrary of actually you know educating young gazans actually especially in the in a post-war setting in the in the understanding that there has to be a territorial settlement that there has to be a, a partition of the land and and obviously we're running into a, a problem with israel right now because you know they're they're very sort of they're very adamant that that a two-state solution would mean the obliteration of israel if you impose that right now diplomatic right if you try to get if you try to sit the, the palestinian authority which condones or at least partly condones people within the PA condone the the October 7th attack with the state of Israel and and sort of make the state of Israel accept that there should be tomorrow full uh, Palestinian sovereignty in the West Bank, Gaza and East Jerusalem, then that would mean like a permanent security threat, you know, a new state that would be constantly firing rockets into West Jerusalem and, and the whole of Israel. And I'm just thinking, like, what can Europe do to foster across the across on both sides of the divide, across Civil society on both sides of the divide. This a, a new understanding that that you know the new generation of Jewish Israelis and Palestinians need to come around to this idea that actually you know we can neither side can focus so heavily on wanting to to get rid of the other state. Right. Um, I, I think this point has been somewhat. Um, taken to, uh, you know, really blown out of proportion by official Israeli diplomacy, right? By saying, you know, we've always been there and we've always shown up around the negotiating table. We've always been willing to make concessions and we've never, we've always run into Palestinian rejectionism. We've never found sort of, you know, a Gandhi or, or you know, or, or a Palestinian leader that would accept the existence of a Jewish state next to a Palestinian and that would want to live in peace. Th- this has really been sort of, you know. Almost demagogically turned into, uh, you know, blown out of proportion. But I think there's some some truth to the fact that that on the Palestinian side, Europe hasn't been making enough uh, uh, efforts to to uh, to, uh, to look at the the rising generation and make sure they're not being indoctrinated in this sort of primordial, almost genetic hate towards what lies across the border. Because then what you get is what you saw on October seventh. So. I don't know my 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 rambling my my speaking sense. Do you think this is realistic, Frankie? Uh, in Europe,
0: again, I, d- I don't I don't know what Europeans really what kind of leverage they have at this point. Um, I mean, you know, the funding on the Israeli side comes from the United States. Israel is it's not like we're back in the nineteen fifties or nineteen sixties where Israel relied, for example, on France quite a lot for its for its army. That time is. Is long gone, and on the Palis- on the Palestinian side, there is a lack of kind of um, connections they ha- they would have here to kind of have any leverage there either. Um, again, the objective for Europeans, in my understanding, should be to kind of wish for the um, end of a conflict as 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 soon as politically possible. Um, does that mean a immediate ceasefire? probably not, but there has been calls for that. So I don't know. Again, I think this is what I'm really interested to see if we could do an episode on this, because I, I'm not sure what Europeans at this point can come in. If they could come in Israel, or they could come in Palestine. What do they have to offer? What kind of leverage do they have? What kind of connections do they have that would make a difference at the moment? I don't think I see anything.
1: Yeah, I, I think just to echo what Francois was saying, we're looking at the present state of what Europe's relationship with the Middle East. And I know at the outset of the conflict, there were a lot of very scathing columns um, from Europe-based commentators talking about the lack of diplomatic clout of the European Union and of European countries that wish to be involved in mediating uh, a, a peaceful resolution to the present violence. Realistically, we are looking at essentially three people being the solution to the present situation and one of them is Joe Biden another one is Benjamin Netanyahu and the third one is Mohammed bin Salman and I think that's realistically where we're at and the relationships that European countries have with those three respective states don't really put it in a position to be in the room where that would happen and I think you know, you know Europe it can be a it can be a host city for peace talks but realistically, I don't think we're going to see mm. a European nation or Europe as a as a political body come together to play an active role because they just don't have the leverage and I don't think they have the connections either.
2: Mm.
0: Julian, thanks yeah. for um, giving a concluding note for what should really be an introduction to a future episode. We might be able to, to rewind and put that as an intro for future episodes. But thanks a lot for coming back. Also, just take a, a few seconds here to celebrate the fact that our previous episode was episode 100. Um, it's been quite few adventure. We started this nearly four years ago now, and uh, 100 episodes is a proper um, milestone, so I'm really happy about that. Congrats to both of you for uh, being on the ride. And um, yeah, mm. if you want to listen to full episodes, you can join us on our patreon which is down below in the description for as little as five euros a month it really makes a difference to support the podcast um and we'd love to have you along for the ride but if you want to support us through other ways you can also do that by sharing the podcast with friends sending it to um people rating it reviewing it all those small things which in the end make a huge difference to make sure we keep on going and maybe no, we'll come back and have episode 150 200 and,
2: and so on thank you so much